What's up everybody, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. In this episode, we're talking to SHP's most voted influential speaker, Louise Taggart. She has got a harrowing story about her wee brother and we're gonna discuss that, we're gonna cover briefly the story and we're just gonna discuss the things that businesses can do or should be doing and things going on in the industry to stop something like that ever happening again. Let's get into the podcast. Health and safety is almost a victim of its own success. We need an oppressive regime of health and safety regulations. A huge fire engulfs a tower block in Children being forced to wear goggles to play conkers at school. Worst oil field disaster, 164 dead. Rebranding safety, the modern health and safety podcast, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Riss Fluent and your host, James McPherson. What's up guys, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to challenge the perceptions, to challenge the health and safety gone mad culture, but to also provide you with solutions and in-depth conversations via YouTube and podcasts to help you run your business, save lives and save money at the same time. Today we're talking to Louise Taggart. Louise Taggart is SHP's most influential speaker and Louise has got a hor- harrowing story about her wee brother. Her brother Michael passed away in an electrical um, incident causing an obviously a fatality. When you really listen to this story and you can go check out the full story on Louise's website which we'll link in the description. Um, and you can watch Louise's story, you can watch the, the videos, My Wee Brother, etc. Louise also travels around the country, so if you get yourself to any expos or something that Louise has had, I would definitely, definitely advise it. But have a listen with an open mind and think, you know, in my business, could something like this happen? Am I applying those pressures? Am I buying tools that aren't ergonomically right for my staff, forcing them to bypass inherent safety um, systems because the only way that we make real changes through us the people the only way that we really stop things like this happening is by employees demanding more and employers doing better sitting around waiting for legislation change sitting around waiting for the government will take too long it's on us to make this change let's get into the podcast okay Louise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Hi, James. Glad to be on. Thanks for the invite. Oh, thank you for coming along. I remember going to, it was actually the Health and Safety Expo when I first uh, saw you speak. It was, um, I think it was on one of the smaller stands, but it was um, quite busy. And um, and yeah, so it's, it's just a phenomenal story. And it's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I definitely didn't have a tear in public. I would never admit to that. Um, but it is, it is amazing. So I suppose maybe let's just start there. Do you just want to kind of tell us your story and Michael's story and, and just kind of and go from go from there? Because it's just, it's just yeah, it's really hard hitting, I think, and it's good for everyone to hear it. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, well, as you say, it's my wee brother's story, uh, really. And uh, he was Michael Adamson, a 26-year-old electrician. He'd left the house that he shared with his fiancée on the morning of the 4th of August 
2005, back in 2005, and was expecting to get home that night to meet the puppy that his fiance had picked up during the day that day. But he got a call sort of midway through the day from his employer asking him to go to an all hands on deck job up in Dundee to get a JJB sports store and gym complex ready for a handover to their client by 10 o'clock the next again morning or else some penalty clauses were going to kick in. So, well, I mean, if you're saving for a wedding and you've been offered overtime probably right through the night, then of course he was going to go. Um, And, yeah, it was sort of after seven o'clock-ish anyway when I get a call from my mum to say that her and my dad were on their way to the hospital in Dundee because Michael had been in an accident and I'll admit I didn't even think to ask what kind of accident um, I, I just had in my head he'd been in a car accident mm-hmm. and yeah when they say that you know they don't know how he is you know that you just need to get yourself there yeah. so that's what we did and yeah when we got to the hospital in Dundee it turned out that he was already dead um, he'd suffered a fatal electric shock on that all hands on deck job um, that he'd been called to so yeah I mean I vividly remember the car journey to that hospital but I don't remember at all the car journey home yeah. Um, so yeah we we kind of we didn't really find out what happened to Michael until almost three and a half years later uh, which is when the court case happened so we kind of the HSE reported fairly quickly uh, so we knew bits of what might have happened but we didn't get the full picture until yeah three and a half years on and so at the trial we find out that um, he's not been given uh, block off devices uh, the practice on the site was to use insulating tape over circuit breakers. So that's despite the fact these lock-off devices were in the employer's uh, method statement. They hadn't been given a voltage tester with a proven unit, which again was in the employer's RAMs. He, oh well, we we don't know. We don't. We still don't know to this day what actually happened. So yeah. So what Michael was doing was he had cut a cable that was labelled not in use. Yeah. They were to connect that cable to one that him and his colleague had pulled in themselves. But he cuts this cable that's labelled not in use. He throws it down and he then strips the insulating material from that cable. And it was when he got to the live wire that it was energised to mains voltage of 230 volts. So, you know, the the HSE inspectors say if he'd been holding his snips by the insulated grips, there'd have been no effect there. But during the trial, we heard evidence from a number of other sparks to say, look, see when we're doing that job, we've got our thumb on the metal part of the snips to get the purchase necessary to get that insulated material off. Mm. So we think that's what Michael was doing. And he was surrounded by metalwork. He's got the frame of that false ceiling that he's up through. He's standing on a set of steps 
that weren't fiberglass. Mm. He is holding those snips um, by um, by the handle, not by the handle. Um, and yes, yeah, so he suffered a fatal electric shock as a result of that. Um, as I say, we don't we don't know the kind of process that Michael followed in the lead up to doing that. We don't know what he did in the lead up to all of that. We don't know if he tested or if he relied on that not in use label mm. or if he's tested when the circuit breaker was turned off but because it's not safely isolated someone's turned it on while he's working on it mm. or because he only had the multimeter available to him. He could have had that set to this wrong selection which would give him a false zero reading. So all of those things, yeah, we don't know and we're never going to know um, mm. the precise circumstances. But what we do know is that he wasn't given the right kit that he should have had in order to do that job safely. He was not set to work in a safe environment. He was not given the appropriate supervision and management that he should have been entitled to um, on that site. And it's all of those things that have accumulated and have taken his life. Mm. It's just it's, it's a story that's really hard to listen to. And I think you get the sense that even now it's quite hard for you to tell, obviously. But I find, I find it so hard to kind of listen to it because of the simple things that, that could have been there that were actually really, really easy to kind of manage you know lockout tag out is something that is very common you know you've been around for a long time oh, but yeah. it is frankly it's something that like you know i rarely see and 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 i've had contractors come in and we talk about you know how are you gonna lock out tag out and we when i worked in manufacturing we had a lockout tag out for many sources like uh if you had something being like for gravity you know you could have a piece of machine and you would kind of lock it up if you're going to work underneath it so it's got so much kind of it's a it's a real simple system to deal with so many hazards is what i'm saying or risks yeah but it, it seems really unknown to a point like maybe not within the safety industry maybe all of us like people like myself that know about it but what about the people actually doing the jobs i find that it's it's not not out, out there enough would you agree or disagree or uh, i think it's it's much better in the industrial arena than it is in the domestic arena, uh, mm. for example. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, Lotto had been taught to apprentices for 20 years prior to Michael dying. Wow. And yet it wasn't being implemented by the electrical contracting industry. Mm. Um, the HSE inspector, who was the specialist electrical inspector from the HSE, he was going into major wholesalers um, asking for examples of lotto devices mm. so that he could produce them as evidence at the trial. So he's doing that in Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah. You know, not a, not a small town, no. um, major capital city. He's doing that here. And at every turn, he was being told, nah, mate, don't stop them. No demand from industry for them. No way. A process that had been taught to apprentices for 20 years. Um, Never and knew I've, that. I've, that blows my mind. Yeah, and I've just I've just recently sort of had a bit of engagement from somebody who was employed by my brother's employer at the same time as him, 
who basically used the excuse to me that, well, at that time, nobody else was doing it. So why should we have to do it? It's not bloody good enough. Mm. Absolutely, it's not bloody good enough. Um, that is... That 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 statement though is so it's, it is wrong and and you know for you to hear that must have been so frustrating but it is synonymous of kind of what we see is that kind of, I've said for a long time like the environment that we're in kind of defines our behaviours and I said time and time again in this podcast but your your brother would have stuck out like a sore thumb probably and maybe have been the slower electrician compared to somebody who's not doing low because yeah. he's doing it right. And yeah. that forces your brother to then be in a very awkward position. And everyone's yeah. like, well, we're not going to send Michael to that job because he does everything bloody right. He's a job's worth and he yeah. takes much longer. And that's the that's real horrible thing about this, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I was just I was speaking to somebody. I got invited to the Electrical Industry Awards um, last week by Super Road, who had done a piece of work which has been great. They've kind of... A piece of work around safe isolation. So they they did a bit of a sort of Facebook uh, community survey of electricians, and we've sort of tried to get Michael's story out there to the electrical trade magazines. Mm-hmm. But what we were saying is, you know, all of this is all well and good, but yeah, if you've if you've got your apprentices and you're teaching them the right thing to do and the right way to do it, but as soon as they get out on site, they're getting the older hand saying to them. Oh, come on, mate. I right, like as if we're going to be doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, then those apprentices are going to get dragged back down to a level that they shouldn't be at. So we're, we we need to teach the apprentices the softer skills around the negotiation and about saying, you know, mm-hmm. what's the right way to kind of stand up to your more experienced colleagues um, if they're trying to to get you to do it the wrong way. That's a great. Yeah, that I was as you were saying that I was thinking, oh, we maybe need to target the older boys and just kind of. But actually, what you're saying there is about focusing on the apprentices' soft skills. That's a great idea. That's phenomenal, actually. And I, I would have never thought of that. What a great idea yeah. to just kind of enable them to be able to influence maybe subtly um, instead of having that awkward. No, I'm going to do it, and then because eventually you get beaten down, and you would eventually not do it. That's an amazing idea. Yeah, I mean, we we all we also do obviously have to target the older ones, um, but yeah, if we can if we can bring that sort of new generation through, mm. who just know that it's the right thing to do and they're going to damn well do it, yeah. then hopefully we knock out that sort of complacency further up I, the tree. It's fascinating because when I think back to just just coincidentally, when I was in college, I did um, I wanted to be a, a lighting engineer in theatre. So I you had to train to be an electrician first. So I went and did my first year at college, which was all in college and so not on the job um, to be in, trained to be an electrician. So the first half of back when I did it, it was the first half in college and then the second half on the job. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, my second half coincided with um, with the um, what's it called? nearly said revolution it's not revolution recession there um, we got no money nobody's employing recession and um and and you think you know trying to get an apprenticeship in a recession just didn't happen okay but when i think back to it i think do you know what i can't ever remember talking about lockout tag out in college now i might have but okay. i never when i started working in health and safety if i i think if i'd have been taught it 
the, the second I read that first document about Lotto, I'd have gone, ah, I remember this, but I never had that. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think, in college, did we even touch on it? Yeah, well, what's what's happened? Um, so just actually from this sort of college year, sect in Scotland, uh, so the apprentice body in Scotland, they are including a sort of little video that I've produced, um, actually Siemens produced with me. They're going to include that in their lotto, um, their sort of safe isolation uh, module. Mm. And from what I understand, they're going to sort of show that to apprentices at the start of each year. So that it kind of, yeah, that, that drip feed is there yeah, and it yeah. sinks in with them. So, so yeah, they they definitely are covering it um, up here. But yeah, I don't know to what extent practices um, vary across England, for example, or Wales. Yeah. And, and simple things like the. I remember when you when you when I first heard your story that the the thumb over the, on on the kind of outside of the insulated grips. Yeah. Um, so like those that don't know, I think if I remember rightly, you probably correct me if I'm wrong, but most it grips are uh, insulated to like a thousand volts or something crazy like that. Mm. So way above what you in domestic especially would be working on. Yeah. But if you put your thumb on the end, it's completely pointless. And yeah. how do we deal with something like that? I mean, it, maybe it's a, exactly the same way. It's that kind of drip feed in it. But is it, I would That's... say like, is it education that, you know, actually putting your thumb there do you realize what you're doing but then you know electricians know that don't they yeah do you know that's a sort of that's a sort of risk or hazard or whatever that that really it should be designed out like there should be a way of designing that out Mm. the insulated grips go up so far why don't they go over and cover the other bit Um, yeah there's obviously a need for the electricians to put their thumb there so instead of addressing them not putting their thumb there let's make the tool work for them yeah Yeah, let's design it out yeah yeah, yeah. and and I'm not aware of any any work around that actually happening. Is that is that something that people are interested in? The industry manufacturers are interested in yeah, making it a bit more ergonomically. It's not something that I've heard about happening. No, um, might be going on somewhere in the background that I just don't know about. But Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. So what? So so that kind of point. That, so so obviously the Michael Michael passed away, and then and then you kind of you kind of took it upon yourself then as the through the trial and. And onwards and what you're doing now and you know voted as, as you were uh, shp's most influential speaker and all that you know do an amazing job what yeah. kind of led you to doing that well it's obvious what led you to do it that you know but how did that kind of growth come about was it natural or was it just yeah. this kind of emotional drive or um i think uh, when michael died i was an employment lawyer mm. i'd been an employment lawyer for many moons and if I'm being honest, I was a bit lost after he died as to what what we needed to do, um, yeah. how how we could make things better. Uh, we, as I say, we spent so long waiting on the trial to happen to happen that it seemed that we spent the early sort of weeks and months battling with the procurator fiscal service to find mm-hmm. out what was happening, like. How is that? How are things progressing? Yeah. And it was about a year after Michael died that I found out about Families Against Corporate Killers. 
So a name that's designed to make folk sit up and take some notice. Mm. It's FAC for short. But this was a group of families who had also lost loved ones in work-related incidents who had come together with Hilda Palmer from the Greater Manchester Hazard Centre who had worked in the sort of safety arena supporting families for very many years beforehand. And these families had come together to be a source of support to one another, but also to campaign to try to make things better, to, to try and get lessons learned so that other families didn't have to go through what they were going through. And so I um, I found out about them and I, I, I joined up. <laughs> I joined up so... That really has guided me ever since. It's, it's from them that I've drawn the strength that I've needed to do what I now do. So in the early days, I would speak at conferences. And I mean, at school and university, I wouldn't have stood up in front of a room full of people like my classmates. I wouldn't have stood up in front of my classmates and spoken. Yeah. Absolutely shit scared of public <laughs> speaking. And it was speaking at Michael's funeral that cured me of any fear of doing that. Um, so I would I would go to conferences and I would speak about the families, but I would speak about the other families because I couldn't speak about what happened to Michael. Um, oh, wow. Okay. As soon as I did, I was away, floods of tears. Um, yeah. So it was really, it was a, it was a call from um, Babcock International Group at Rossyth Dockyard that's led me to now telling Michael's story as it is these days. So it was somebody from the STUC had gone into Rosyth. They were having, they'd had a, num- a run of electrical incidents. Ian from the STUC had said to them, you should get Louise in to speak to them. <laughs> and I went, uh, yeah. like, no, you're kidding me on. Like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. But actually, once you process it and you think to yourself, right, look, as an employment lawyer, I was a professional support lawyer. I was writing the training materials. I was delivering training to clients. So I've now sat with four weeks worth of trial notes from the criminal trial of my brother's employer, Mm. doing bog all, gathering dust on a shelf. Why don't I see if I can put them into some sort of presentation and go in and we'll do it because it's a one-off. They've asked me in as a (laughs) one-off. So I went in to do it as that one-off and then got asked to come back and speak to everybody on that site. Yeah. And it's just kind of grown from there, if I'm being honest. Mm. Yeah. My old boss used to say, you do something once, you do it a thousand times. Yeah. Make sure you don't, you want to do it a thousand times. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely didn't. After that first time, there was no way I was doing it again. Um, Yeah, but then you see the impact that it has mm. and you know then that positives are coming from something so crap mm. um, that yeah if we can what I say is you know if we can leave him the living legacy that he didn't get to leave himself so true isn't it it's such a shame that we need uh, you know we call it especially in, in the fire game and stuff like that you, you call it like stable door legislation because you know we have a look at it once the horse has already bolted and yeah. and it's such a shame that we have to have that but it does make people's 
ears prick up, doesn't it? It does make people listen when you get, you know, this kind of, yeah, well, I couldn't stop listening to you when when I first, you know, heard your story. I was absolutely steely-eyed, and, and it is because you tell it really well, um, but it's an emotional kind of story, isn't it? It really hits you. Yeah. Such a shame that we kind of, we have to have that to help everyone else. But, you know, I think you, you having that kind of most influential speaker title now, I think that, that says it all, really. You know, what you're doing is, is phenomenal. Um, and I'm kind of talking like it's the end of the podcast. It's not, but I do think it's, <laughs> worth, it's worth saying that, you know, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that kind of change happens one by one, kind of like a virus. You know, you'll, you'll infect me with the change and then I'll infect somebody else and, and that will spread eventually. And whether it, and whether that starts at Scotland and works its way down, then then so be it. Let, let's just keep going with that. And it's a phenomenal job you're doing, and it must be horrendously hard. But thank you. I think oh, you're doing an amazing thank job. You. Thank you. Yeah, no, it, yeah, it can be pretty exhausting. But as I say, I, I know it has that positive impact at the end of the day. So it's getting that feedback about things that practices that people have changed or yeah things that they've spoken up about that previously they maybe wouldn't have spoken up about uh yeah and then you you know that yeah those little pockets have changed because what I always say is you know so much went wrong in Michael's case mm. that if just one or two things if one or two people had raised their game in a particular way then you plug those holes and it doesn't happen um yeah. so yeah so that's what we're trying to do plug holes all over the place <laughs> it's so it's so it's it's so interesting to a point that if you look at kind of all these stories so like you know my cause and, and your story and then you've got like jason anchor um we had him on the podcast as well and then and then i remember i can't remember the name of the case but i, I remember when i first started learning um in my career in health and safety covering a case study of a, a gentleman that had gone inside uh um he'd gone inside like a an industrial cooker and and, uh, and unfortunately, same thing, you know, lockout, tagout would have would have so- solved that. Unfortunately, somebody turned the oven on. Long story short, we can we, we know one, what happened there. One of his um, relatives, I think, that turned it on, wasn't it? I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's quite a popular story. It was like his I think it was his father-in-law or future father-in-law. Yeah, when you look at it and you look at all these things and, and one of the things in Michael's story that I think stands out with me is it that important job you know this is the last minute job we've got to get we've got to get going um pressure you know yeah. to just get the job done quickly but but yeah so those kind of those pressures I think is so interesting and to a point that it really does change how we work doesn't it is how how quick you you always think you know we, we cut those corners because we need that job to go out now, and and it's everywhere. I remember having that in manufacturing. This has got to happen. I remember, we had um, a long story short, we were making a product that was going to go as installation, and it needed to be flame retardant as per legislation. Um, which you know, we kind of seeing a lot of that on the news now. But mm-hmm. and I remember talking to the customer, being like, "This is not going out the door, mate." We were a quality as well, and we we're like, "This is not going out the door." And I remember the phrase, "Get it." I need it now. I don't care. Get it. And it's like, no. And that took, as a very young kind of person, very young in my career, it was really hard to kind of say, no, we were under a lot of pressure. And I think if we didn't get the backing from the, our internal management team, I mm. wonder, would we have sent that out? I think a lot of businesses might have just turned a blind eye. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think there needs to be a bit of a rethink about penalty clauses and mm. these sort of financial penalty clauses. If it's not done by then, then you're hit with a certain amount of thousands of pounds worth of uh, liquidated damages or whatever because, yeah, it drives the wrong behaviours. Um, I mean, in Michael's case, the penalty clause, I think, was only about £15,000 uh, for yeah. a 720 grand job. But still, it drives the wrong behaviours. I, I don't know what we do. Um, I, wish, I wish I did know what we do to get away from that. Um, it's, yeah. it's difficult, isn't it? I remember we talked in a podcast a while ago with a colleague of mine and just said, well, what about just kind of spitballing ideas? What if we were to have every kind of timeline target? We just add 10 or 20% for safe practices or something like that. I, I don't know. But then... Then I think about it, well, yeah, maybe that would work for the first year and then we'll get used to it and we would just fill that 10% with with whatever, work uh, and yeah. stuff like that. And you would just account for it. And I think I think that is uh, one of the harder things is you, you, you're really trying to change mindsets there of industries, not just like one or two person. You're trying to change the finance department, the quoting department, the sales the department. Yeah. Else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a question for another day. I think I don't have the answer to that one, sadly. No, you're right. You're right. I do, but I do think like it's interesting that we look at kind of this the story and I think you know, if, to a point, if we had all of those pressures, etc. You know, let's say we can't get rid of those. Like you say, it's combination conversation for a very long podcast. I suppose that one, but it wouldn't matter. Maybe or it would matter less if everyone was still as a given doing lockout tag out you know we had the right tools that were ergonomically correct to be able to put your phone wherever you need to put it and so on and so forth we wouldn't probably need to focus on the pressure side of things so much because the employees would just that would be natural you would just go well you've got to account 10 minutes per job for the lotto for example um and that's a given that's what we need i suppose isn't it yeah, it's where there's that yeah that safety net of yeah the safe environment that you're working in. I guess yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if it's that there needs to be sort of a reward for an employer putting their subcontractor putting their hands up and saying, "Look, we can't do it safely in the time that we have left." Um, that you know that people feel that they can have that adult conversation rather than plow on regardless. Yeah. Because if they had stopped and taken a step back on that night of the 4th of August, then they would have realised there was no way they were getting that job done anyway, regardless of the number of men they threw at it mm. by the next again morning. So do you know what? It's a sports shop. It's a gym complex. It's going to open anyway. Like, mm. seriously, is it worth what happened? Yeah. It's not. It's, it's, it's not, is it? It's, it's really not. And that's that's the, the horrible part of it. And it's the, the, the irony is that, you know, that, that place probably didn't open for a lot longer than what it would have because of Michael's case and everything. Absolutely. They, they couldn't do anything. So actually, oh. you're going to put themselves in the bum, really, haven't they? To, yeah. to, for lack of a better phrase. And it, I do think this stuff is so, you know, your, your story is obviously primarily around electrical safety, but those kind of those kind of fundamentals they 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 apply to so many other industries and so many things you know that let's get this job done and i i do a lot of work around fire safety um 
and probably dominates my role at the moment. You currently kind of going around doing a lot of training. And I use this example of an escape room because I say we would never design a building with no means of escape unless you're going mm -hmm. to an escape room, which the whole unique selling point is that you're locked in the building. You've got to try and get your way out, which is ironic from a fire okay. safety point of view. But I remember going to this one and I use this example that there was no fire escape in this bit where we were. Um, and the doors were locked with like typical padlocks that you would lock your shed up with. And I remember thinking like going in there and looking around. And I think if you're in that, if you're in this game, you do it naturally. You know, especially if you're kind of an auditor, risk assessor, you're trained to go in a room and look around like up, down. So I just do it naturally all the time. So I look around, no detection. And I'm thinking, oh, hello, we should probably have a lot of fire detection in a, in a building like this. And mm. I remember, like, my mates and my wife take the mick out of me, but I remember thinking, like, this place is dangerous. Like, I don't want to shut it down. I don't. I want us to be able to do things like this, but I want right. us to be able to do it as safe as possible. Yeah. And the fact is, there are very sophisticated systems that we could have had in that building that had a lot of detection. As soon as it goes off, bang, doors are open, lights are on, everything. Right. You have a good amount of supervision. And actually, we can get it done. But when we look back at it and we think, well, what were their priorities when they started building this place? How cheap can we get this up? And yeah. how quick can Quickly. we get it up to make as much money as possible? Yeah. And that's it. That's our priorities. And it's like, you know, without getting into a massive conversation about capitalism and all that crap, it's like we need to just change our priorities. It's like, how can we do this as quick and as safe as possible? Yeah, and that's got to be the the kind of driver, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we're talking about changing mindsets of a of a nation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or three nations. No, England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland. Yeah, four nations. Yeah, it's, it's a big old big old job of work right there. Yeah, mm. um, we must be seeing some. You must be seeing some like you were saying some positives coming out of what you're doing do you get do you, are you seeing a change are you satisfied with some of the stuff you're seeing or are you not seeing anything uh no i am seeing change like i definitely see change in businesses that i go into my my biggest concern is kind of the electrical industry as a whole and the fact that it seems to be run by the same people who've always run it that they're I don't know it seems like a bit of a you know boys network that jobs you know, for boys kind of thing yeah if you, if you don't have your job in that organization anymore then it's fine because you can get your job in this organization I think there just needs to be a bit of a shake-up if I'm being honest um yeah. particularly of the electrical contracting bodies um, I mean I, I've I, I would like that the electrical contracting bodies took more of a proactive role in auditing their members to mm. see if they are implementing safe isolation procedures, yeah. for example. Mm. But what I what I understand is the case that you know there's not any sort of uh, spot checks done. That it's much more of a planned right. We'll be at your job in this place on such and such a day. You know, yeah. and we're coming to see your work. Well, and by the time the inspectors there, they're covered in PPE and everything's oh, yeah, perfect. everything's hunky dory. It's like, well, it's no. Do you know what? Turn up at a job unannounced yeah. and see I'm what really the lie of the land is. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and that, would, go on. No, I would. I would just. I would like to see. I would like to see that happening. 
um, mm-hmm. much more often. You know, the HSE, they've had their budget slashed. The the likelihood of an of an organisation getting a proactive preventative inspection these days is way down. Mm. So there must be other ways to do it. Um, so yeah, that that would be a big thing that I would like to see happen. And I think you know what that would be in in so many industries. These accrediting bodies that we have and these uh, membership clubs and whatever that we have. You know, I've said for a long time, especially in the fire game, and and it was funny that you said exactly the same thing. I call it club for boys, and I've said that for a, a while. Like, and you've got, and I'm not going to say what organisation, but you've got some out there that that actually promote. You, that we don't have to come to your site for you to give you this to give you this badge to say you're safe and the Seriously? irony of that is like so hang on a minute how are you assessing <laughs> if i'm safe then as a contractor it's just paperwork oh, now if geez. we look back at your story the yeah. employer had the rounds yeah they had the risk assessments the method statements had yep. the policies etc and actually when you when you re- listen to your story and hear about all the stuff they talk about, lock out, tag out, testing for dead, etc., like that's all spot on. So yeah. me as a as a as an employee, an employer of said contractor would be like, well, they've got the badge that says they're a safe contractor. They've mm-hmm. got the Rams because I've seen them. You know, they've got insurance. They've got all the stuff there. And us kind of as maybe customers employing these contractors that led into a false sense of security, really, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, there, there needs to be better ways, yeah, of checking things. As you say, you can have all the paperwork you want, but if you're not putting that paperwork into practice, it is utterly meaningless. Utterly mm. meaningless. And I think if you combine that with what you were saying about kind of positive um, incentments, so like positive reinforcement, you know, if you had, so I don't know, McPherson accrediting body, for example, and we, we, we were to go out to Louise Electrical and then be like, oh, I can see you're using lockout tag out there, Louise. Why are you using that? Oh, because we've got two boys working on this system, blah, blah, blah. And then be like, great, you've got 10% off your next month's membership for mm. safe practices. You know, I think it would combine stuff like that. It just makes it, it encourages people, like, you know, how can we save money? It's that safety person going in and saying, I've got a way we can save money. Mm. We can have it absolutely perfect. And our accrediting body, McPherson Accreditation, We'll, we'll knock 10% off of being an actual safe contractor or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I think, I don't know, I think the electrical contracting industry as a whole, it just, it's a bit of a mystery to me, like where safety comes and mm. their priorities, if I'm being honest. Because even the awards that we were at last week, the electrical, so it's the electrical industry awards, and I get got told by Super Rod that, you know, they'd put in a submission about, the campaign that we'd been running and that had been shortlisted for an award and I was like oh brilliant like a safety award for it would be amazing and they were like no there's no safety award it's a marketing initiative award right okay um but there must be there must be like a safe there must be a safety category surely at the electrical industry awards no no safety category so yeah even even little things like that make Mm. you think Really, where are we, people, um, in having health and safety as the number one priority of the electrical contracting industry? Mm. We're still a long way off. It is, isn't it? It's, it, it's like, it's it just, I think, just changing those perceptions, isn't it? Just, just 
Yeah, I think you, we've got to. I think we've just got to pick those that one thing that you know, whether it's the accrediting bodies, the memberships, the the suppliers, you know, even the customers. To be honest, you know, I mean, it's, let's say I was a, a customer employing um, employing an electrical contractor. It's doing that little bit more than just asking for the RAMs. You mm-hmm. know, and I think that's a good to to be honest. It's a good point to highlight that as a customer, you've got just as much responsibility for that contractor as they have for their employees. Yeah, yeah. And Mace uh, that I did some work with recently, they had a bit of a focus on electrical safety and what they had done was, because I mean, they're using subcontractors and in some cases sub-subcontractors maybe doing electrical work. What they had done was put through all their health and safety professionals through a safe isolation course so that the safety professionals actually understood what it was they were looking for. Um, Mm. So if they were going around and auditing or doing a safety walk around or whatever it might be, that actually they could clock if something wasn't right. Mm. Uh, So I think that that would be a great thing for the sort of the customer, um, the principal contractor, whatever, to be doing uh, to improve conditions on sites. Yeah. It it is just so much to kind of of look at, isn't it? I mean, you, you touch on like about like the supervision as well and and, <laughs> and i think you touch on in in kind of your, your full story about the supervisor not thinking that safety was part of his job which is yeah. fascinating and and again it's frustrating that we hear that all the time you know I've, i hear that all the time and and even now like we're in 2019 for god's sake and i still get you know emails being like you know safety that's your job because you've yeah. got safety in your title yeah. It's like no, no, no. It's not my job. I'm here to help you, guide you, um, coach you, train you, whatever you want. Yeah. I'll give you it, but it's, it's your job. It's not even a job. It's something yeah. you should just have there all the time. It shouldn't even be a priority. It's just there in your in your head all the time, thinking, "What am I doing? Could that hurt me or hurt someone else?" Yeah. I think Jason yeah. Jason Anker's story quite heavily focuses originally anyway on on that kind of. You're you're doing this to protect yourself. Remember, mm-hmm. like not just mm-hmm. you know lockout tagout is a great example. Testing for dead is a great example. You're the one working on that system, not anyone else. Yeah, and I mean in Michael's case, the supervisor. Yeah, you're right. He said, "I don't regard it as part of my job to ensure that safe working practices are adhered to at all times." And he said that the procedures in the contract safety plan were not enforced by me. Now, he was a non-working charge hand, was his title. Um, right. So if you're a non-working charge hand, <laughs> what, what, you're, if you're not actually doing the work, but you're overseeing the work, what is it you're looking for if you don't think that safety is part of that role? Um, mm. It's just a bit of a mystery. But the, fact, the fact is, I also think there was an issue with his training, so the way he had been trained. So. Okay. He's one of these individuals who's kind of come up through the ranks and he's got the years of experience and then you just get promoted, don't you? Yeah. Um, without actually the training behind that to tell you what your role is meant to be. Mm. Um, so I think there was an element of that in Michael's case as well. I think that's yeah. a good point because I remember when you, when you were saying about that, I remember, um, and it's annoying that all of my examples are primarily fire-based, but we, when I was in manufacturing, we... Um, we had uh, we we would do regular evacuation drills. For example, we had quite mm. a 
high explosive environment. So it was very important that we could evacuate this building as quick as possible. Because if something went up, it was going up. Well, anyway, long story short, we did a drill and we were just observing. Cause we had like a high platform. So me and the manager of this area were just observing kind of what would go on, kind of from a bird's eye point of view. It was really, we were really lucky to have that. Mm-hmm. So we just stood there. The alarm went off. The apprentice, spot on, did everything he needed to do, turned the machine off, off he goes out of the building. As he was making his way out of the building, the machine operator who was training said apprentice with two coffees in his hand, so what are you doing? He said, the alarm's going off. Just turn the machine off. we got to yeah. go. And he went, no, no, no. The shutters, the roller shutters haven't come down. That means it's not a real fire. Come on, get back oh. to your machine. When did you turn the machine off? About 30 seconds ago. It's quick, turn it back on before we lose the we lose the product. Serious. And it was like, and me and, I remember, oh, I nearly said his name then, but me and the <laughs> manager standing there and, and just with our mouths open, like in shock. Wow. But what it did do, luckily, was highlight that it's not the alarms that are telling these people, it's right. the roller shutters. <laughs> so we left it about six months. We, 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 we did a bit of training and then we left it six months, didn't say anything. We didn't mention it. We did nothing. And then we did another drill and we didn't turn the roller shutters off. We let them come down. Pandemonium. <laughs> Everybody panicked. They oh, literally thought the dear. place was going to explode. Right. And, and that was really eye-opening to us. But it's interesting to your point that that apprentice was only being trained. You know, it was only a machine apprenticeship. So he didn't mm-hmm. really go to college or do anything. It was, he was getting everything tra- taught by us. Okay. And we were teaching him wrong. Right. So yeah. it started from day dot. Okay. Those bad habits. But it's, it's that kind of um, sort of the regularity of things and people getting to know those sorts of things. Like, that, yeah, the, you know, the shutters aren't coming down. So it's fine. There's also the supervision point there that, you know, I did a safety walk round recently and we caught a couple of guys, I say caught, but we came across a couple of guys who were doing something in a way that they really shouldn't have been doing it. So, you know, we entice them down from the height that they were at and have a chat with them and say, you know, should you really be doing it that way? And, you know, where's your supervisor? What does your supervisor say about you doing it this way? And we won't see the supervisor again until like half three. Mm. How do you know that? Oh, because that's when he does, that's when he comes round, like he does his walk round at half three. All right, okay. Mm. <laughs> so you know that you can get away with stuff because he's not going to be round again until half three. Um, mm. So yeah, mix it up a bit, people. Um, yeah, it's true. Yeah. And it is hard, it's hard to a point that, you know, like you, you said caught and, and I know you corrected yourself and then yeah. the phrase supervisor as well. It puts us in this position where we kind of, and saying that these people are not intelligent enough to manage their own safety, but mm-hmm. we're not seeing it, are we? We're not seeing people managing their own safety sometimes. And and mm-hmm. that is, um, again, it's a quite of a big part of Jason's story. Is like he he's very much talks about how I could have changed my future. Yeah, and, you know, he was lucky to live. Um, yeah. obviously with with some serious disabilities, but it's yeah, that two pronged approach, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I mean the supervisor in my brother's case, said that, you know, they were all experienced guys. I shouldn't have had to look over their shoulders constantly. And absolutely, you shouldn't Mm. have had to look over their shoulders constantly. But I kind of use the analogy of speeding cameras. So you've got a stationary speeding camera, speed camera, 
up ahead if you've been speeding you slow down until such a time as you're past that stationary speed camera and you're going to speed back up again because mm. that's it it's bye that's your kind of supervisor who kind of drops in every now and again whereas if you've got the average speed cameras then you're much more likely to stick mm. to that speed limit but it's not one person it's a number of people so yeah it's not about that one supervisor it's about everyone looking out for one another and Mm. yeah being able to stop their colleague if they think that their colleague's not quite about to do something right or yeah to speak up themselves um and say i'm not doing it you can't put me to work in that way Mm. so yeah it's not about that one supervisor it's about yeah a bit of a regularity of as well maybe at the point that you for lack of a better word you catch someone doing something dangerous is it's a so from my point of view anyway i think it that is a key moment you spot somebody doing something you know i don't know working on a live circuit you know standing on the top rung of a ladder whatever and you, you just say whoa hang on a minute mate jump down and it's that you safety professionals especially need to i think come away from that finger pointing you're doing this wrong blah 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 and and highlight this as an opportunity to to educate to to yeah. learn this is a learning opportunity to get someone down and be like mate i just noticed you're on the top rung do you know what why you're not really supposed to stand on the top rung and explain that do you know actually if you're working on a live circuit yeah you know, i don't want to state the obvious but that's really dangerous and you're why mm-hmm. hey, uh well yeah obviously i do but everybody you know does it like that blah 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 and then you'd be like, do you know what lockout tag out is? And I said, no, I never heard of it. Okay, let's go and let's go and do that and, and treat it like that. So, yes, we can say supervise. Yes, we can say court. But it's how we approach those situations afterwards, I think, yeah. that, that yeah. makes a difference. Absolutely. About being able to have that sort of safety coaching conversation. Um, and I, I'm guilty of it myself, uh, getting it wrong in instances where I see somebody doing something wrong Mm. and I did it myself just a couple of weeks ago with a couple of scaffolders um that yeah I saw climbing up stuff that there was a sheer drop below them not harnessed on and I challenged them in a way that I shouldn't have challenged them um but I got myself caught up in that moment of how could you be so stupid what Mm. you're doing how could you put yourself at risk in that way um so yeah and it just shortly after that I was at a company I was at Twinings actually in Andover and I was doing a piece with their health and safety manager who was also talking about coaching conversations yeah and it really it really ticked me and I know that in future I'm going to approach those types of conversations much differently to the way that I approached that one yeah that's that fascinating story that that is like and the fact that you could acknowledge that actually you didn't get the result maybe that you wanted nope. even though what Absolutely. you're what you're doing yeah is amazing but in that second and, and we actually talked about it i did a podcast i think it was like two podcasts ago about the language that we talk about and i use the example of um greta Thun- i can't pronounce her second name the <laughs> young girl that's doing all the yeah. environmental work um doing a fascinating job you know getting a message out there that's unbelievable you know i'm a massive advocate of her however you look at the amount of hate that she's getting mm. online and and then you compare that to the language that she uses, which is a very aggressive language of your your generation is killing my generation and you doing this wrong. And it's very much an aggressive 
mannerisms and language attacking specific generations so those people that are being targeted by her speech be it whether she's right or wrong doesn't matter they've stopped listening yeah yeah they've stopped listening they don't care they're looking at Greta now going you're just an ungrateful little bitch and just just completely switched off yeah. And, and then not now. You've lost that opportunity to to educate. You've lost that opportunity to say engage them positively. Yeah. Exactly, and it's so true. And it kind of brings me to another example of my very very good friend of mine, best friend of mine, was my best man, and um, and I talk about him a lot in this podcast because he is literally your kind of stereotypical builder, you know, and he just doesn't get safety whatsoever, but. Mm. over the years and I'm kind of chipping away at him and he's starting to open his eyes a little bit and he has a, a great story of the safety guy coming over very aggressive very hierarchical you're doing this wrong if, if he didn't know my best mate I tell you now you ain't gonna get anywhere if you talk to him like that yeah, he's stubborn yeah. as a mule switch off gone you've got to approach these people sometimes in a manner in which you know you might not get to address what you want to address in that conversation but it's the next conversation where they like you and they know you. Oh, all right, James, how you doing? And you go back and you be like, let's just have a chat about ladders or whatever. Right. You know what I mean, but yeah. it's, it's hard. And I imagine it's so, so hard for you when there's such an emotional connection to it. Yeah. It must be a real challenge. It is a real challenge, yeah. Um, yeah, just reining that in a bit. Um, there's no point in coming over as the over-emotional female who's yeah having a rant at them about whether their parents would enjoy kind of uh, arranging their funeral um yeah it's not the best way to go about it Louise really so but it's understanding I can completely understand yeah. why you would oh. have that kind of approach yeah uh, that must have been a and, and that's a recent tran- transition you're kind of you're going through now do you find that that's something you've struggled with for a while yeah, I think I think I've adopted the wrong approach in the past, um, and yeah, I will now do it a different way, having having listened uh, to that chat at Twinings. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's an amazing, that's an amazing kind of. It's an amazing story, but it's also fascinating to see kind of your story within that story of Michael's mm-hmm. story and your kind of transition as well. It's fascinating. Yeah, you know, I could probably I could probably talk talk to you for hours about this, but <laughs> probably shouldn't. You've got a life, and and, and I've got a little <laughs> a bit dog. of a life. My dog's <laughs> just started barking again. And so, if you want to kind of talk us about, you, you do a lot of work with. Um, you've obviously mentioned fact for uh, families against corporate killers, and you do some just double making sure I get the names right, get my notes. Um, with Scottish Hazards, you you mentioned. Uh, earlier I think but maybe just give us a bit of an introduction especially for anyone who's up your way as to what those organizations can do or are doing for people and yeah and as well kind of how we could utilize those organizations as well yeah so Scottish Hazards uh, it's been a campaigning organization for about 20 years uh, and perhaps about four or five years ago now I was asked to take on a job to convert it to charitable status because what they had always wanted to do was open an advice centre for workers on health and safety issues. Yeah. So they'd never really had the money but then got given a bit of seed money and they thought if we don't do this now we're never ever going to do it. So it was just at the time that I'd started telling Michael's story. So I then took on that role. We converted it 
to charitable status and we then launched uh, the advice centre uh, for workers. So it's primarily aimed at non, um, non-unionised workplaces because they're the people who are more, most likely to not have the, the sort of ready access to health and safety advice or training. Mm. Um, we have a helpline number which is 0800 and yeah we, what we want to do is get to situations before they result in the injury or the illness or well, yeah worse so yeah whatever sector whatever work environment people are working in whether it's that they have um concerns that you know they've been set set to work somewhere where asbestos is present and it's not been managed correctly we can deal with that whether it's we've had calls from you know chefs who've not been given the right overalls to wear um other individuals who yeah haven't been given the right safety equipment for working at height lots of different things um but yeah if an individual has a concern and they're thinking there's an accident waiting to happen here we want to hear from them but also if there's a relative of somebody who's mm. going home of a night and saying mm. to their loved one, see my workplace, like, you never guess what's happened today. Yeah. If that relative has a concern about their loved one, we want that relative to phone us as well to see that. if we can help. Um, because I, I get it. Like, people have a job, they don't want to be rocking the boat or whatever else. Oh. Um, they maybe don't want to make the call themselves. Um, but if we can somehow assist and make things better, then that's what we want to do. That's a good idea, actually. Kind of not targeting is not the right word, but offering that kind of channel of communication from that other source. That's a great yeah. idea. Yeah. So, well, and I'll put all the links and stuff in the description to the websites and that, so that anyone that's listening to this can can go on and and I'll put your your um, website on there as well. There's quite a lot of you've got just the full story on your website as well haven't you so people can go and watch the videos that you've yeah done. there's a sort of six minute video that would give an overview of of what happened to michael yeah mm. that'd be great thanks james no problem thank you for for coming on the podcast and thank you for doing everything that you're doing i think we need more and more people just kind of communicating those stories um as you know it's, it's horrible that we need those stories to for us to listen but it's amazing that people like yourself and, and Jason and Jason's got a whole team of people that are doing stuff like this. It's such a shame that they've got to go through those those painful yeah. events to to do Absolutely. it. But from my point of view, it only helps me as a professional to be able to communicate the moral side of things and to be able to use your stories to actually get people to listen to, to me, um, yeah. which is so thank you. Is, is probably the only thing I would like to say. <laughs> oh, and, and yeah, thank you back to you as well, because yeah, I'm one person, so it, yeah, it needs other people um, to be taking the message and getting it out to other people. So thank 100%. you. Okay, guys, I hope you found that conversation interesting, useful. Um, you can really hear that it's difficult for Louise to say even now, um, after the years that she's been doing this day in, day out. Um, yeah, I can only thank... Louise and people like Louise like Jason and and um, Abby and their team at Proud to be Safe and all other people out there that have taken their um, 
horrible incidents in their lives and turned it into a positive to help us safety professionals and businesses um, have our eyes opened uh, and to really kind of see that this this stuff does actually go wrong and when it does it can have harrowing effects so thanks again um, Louise and thank you everyone out there that's helping um, health safety professionals and etc do their jobs as safe as possible um, by making it real for us and I'm sorry that you had to go through that stuff um, for, for us to hear these stories but thank you don't forget to check out Louise's story um, we're going to link everything down in the description um, and we'll, we'll link all of the kind of organisations that she's helping out as well um, don't forget to try and get yourself to one of these expos or something that Louise does she travels all around the country talking so just keep your eye out for her name um, and definitely go check her out. It is a it is a heart rendering story when you hear the whole thing and 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 yeah, you know, I won't I won't lie, I had a tear rolling down my cheek when I heard it the first time in public. Um but have a think, peeps, you know, especially your if you're in electrical industry, yeah, have a think. Are you doing those things or are your employees doing those things or are your mates doing those things? you know you have an obligation to just question it and challenge it we can demand better from industries and you know an industry is not going to provide pliers that have that are more ergonomically fitted to you to allow you to put your thumb over the grip unless you demand change i think there is a real power in us so I'll leave it there. I hope you found this useful. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Um if you're on YouTube don't forget to hit the bell as well. Um, have a think, are there three people that you can think of right now that will benefit from this podcast? If there is, share it with them. Let them hear this story. Think of three people that you know right now that will benefit from this story and share it with them. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to give us a rate or a review on iTunes, any of the other podcast platforms. Um, and if you do leave us a review, you know, screenshot it and tweet us at Rebranded Safety or come find us on Facebook, Rebranded Safety. Even come find me on LinkedIn. All the links are in the description below. I'll catch you in the next po podcast, guys. Safe. <laughs>